Good morning. Happy Fourth of July weekend. Hasn't God been amazing to this country that uh, we get to worship together without fear of any kind of repercussions outside of enjoying a time of worship together? I am, I am grateful, and I thank God for this country. Uh, my name is Matt Williams. I'm on staff here and oversee a number of groups. Um, I wanted to thank Eric and Alex for uh, picking up the pieces here this morning as uh, Podge is out ill, so uh, it's going to be the Eric and Alex duo for uh, our acoustic set, which is great. Thank you guys for doing that. Um, wanted to mention a couple things. You just heard the announcements. Uh, the excitement and, uh, again, encouraging you to uh, pray for our students going to Hume. Uh, a week from, let's see, two weeks from today, uh, we're going to start a, a two-part series on marriage. Uh, Brandon has given me the privilege of uh, speaking into the marriages here in this church, and we're going to do a two-week series, the 17th and the 24th, I think is, I'm going to pull up my calendar, 17th and 24th. So I encourage you uh, to prepare your hearts for that, because I'm looking forward to uh, speaking into your marriages, encouraging you, uh, coaching you into one of the greatest love relationships God ever uh, created. And I want it to be the best it can be for you, with uh, obviously the help of God working inside of all that. Uh, it's my privilege to read uh, the section of Scripture Brandon's going to be teaching from this morning. We're in Luke 12. The uh, version that we're reading from is ESV, if you have that option in your app, for instance. Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is to the one who lays up treasure for himself, it is not rich toward God. This is God's word this morning. Praise be to God as we open the word again. Um, some may find this uh, part of scripture a little interesting as we title today's message, Show the World God's Generosity. Showing the world God's generosity. As Jesus is teaching here, we've moved from a Pharisee's table in his house to the crowd. A very large crowd on a mountaintop in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, they were trampling one another. He began to say to the disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And then he goes on in verse 2 of chapter 12, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. Whatever you whisper in private, rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus is teaching 
and it's interesting how he's interrupted. As Jesus goes straight to the heart of what we think we exist for. You think about this this morning, are we existing or are we living? And this idea of existing is really just the toil and the work to try and get food or clothes, and it's an existence. We have a breath. But are we living? Do we have a purpose? Are we really full of life? Because Jesus came and and said, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. And he said, the, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you may have life. And the interesting thing here is, He's teaching on our attitude. He's, he's, he's teaching on, out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouth speaks, and so he's teaching on our attitude and our use of, of wealth and possessions. And if you've been around our church, you know it's interesting how often it comes up in, in conversation about how much appreciative you all are that we don't pass the plate. And it's like, I always feel weird about that. You know, you're forcing people to give. And I always wanted to do a reverse tithe, but some people counseled me against that, where you just pass the plate and you just take out of it as you need. I just thought that'd be so cool. You know, like how come as a church we can't just give? And it's like, well, you kind of need to go through some back. I'm like, yeah, I, I guess, you know, me in high school, that probably would not have worked out that well. I'm like, oh, sweet, there's lunch for the day. Who wants to go to In-N-Out? I'm buying But Jesus here is talking to them and teaching, and this guy interrupts and says, hey, teacher, you got to come help my my brother. We have this inheritance issue. you got to help us understand money. It's like, where did that come from? You need to understand that as we get into this subject of, of money, and as we've taught the gospel, and it's always about Jesus, these secondary third issues that, that money seems to be. It's like, man, we're all about Jesus, and he doesn't want your money. He has the cattle on a thousand hills. He wants your soul. He wants your life, and so we focus on the basics, but Jesus keeps bringing up money, and so as you get into the gospel and as you read your Bible, you're going to be confronted as we are today. When we come to Jesus, he starts talking about how we live, but we have to first get a grip and understand that we need to surrender to Jesus. So first things first, as we see Jesus teaching, and we come to Jesus as our Savior, he starts talking about how we live and revealing what we're really living for or what we think we're living for. And so we we see this is even a little confusing to Peter, where in verse 41, Peter says, Lord, Master, are you telling this to us or are you telling the crowd? Which when it talks about money and how the disciples live, Jesus often is teaching the disciples on how they should live as Christ directly to them, but in a way that the crowd could overhear, which is just always mind-boggling because it's like, well, is he teaching the disciples or is he teaching the crowd or is it both and? And here Jesus is doing both and, and often it's the case. And we realize Jesus is addressing the crowd, the people who believe and people who don't believe and people who don't know what they believe. And as we gather on Sundays, such as the the crowd, some believe, some don't, some are in the middle, some are seeking, trying to figure it out. And, And most of 
the teaching on, on giving and stewardship and the relationship to our possessions Jesus Christ wants disciples to have, he wants the crowd to hear. Jesus wants the crowd to hear him talking to the disciples about their money. And we'll get to see why that might be true, but as I realize this, we're going to see that he's talking to the disciples as he's talking to Christians about their money. And if you're here, my suggestion is to just don't take offense right away that he's talking about money or these hard things because first he wants us to come to him and surrender to him. And we need to understand that is the case, that he's talking to the disciples who've already chosen to follow him, but in a way that the crowd could overhear and understand when you follow Jesus, it's not just a fragment and, and giving isn't an obligation, but it's an opportunity. So we see first there's a request, then there's a refusal, and finally a rebuke. So first the request. Verse 13, someone in the crowd says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Why that request? This is kind of the shorter of the three points, but as we look at it, why would he request Jesus to come? He says, Rabbi. And in those days, you would go and you would seek the accredited rabbis or the, the Sanhedrin, the leaders in the, in the temple to, to make decisions on financial matters in the family. But typically, that would be a private matter. You, you wouldn't go in the public. But why is he being asked about a money issue and a family matter publicly? And if you read the gospel, if you read Luke in particular in one sitting, you'll immediately see this fact that Jesus talks about money more than he talks about any other single subject, except maybe himself. Even there, I don't think so. I think Jesus talks about money even more than he talks about himself. And I don't know how to explain it to you or begin to tell you the, the immensity that he talks about money because in most of chapter 12, it's about money. Most of 11 is about it. Most of 16 is about it. In Luke 3, John the Baptist is asked, how do I repent? And he says, don't be greedy. Be content with your wages. It's like, man, these guys keep talking about money. And the Pharisees are, are denounced in Luke 16. They're called lovers of money. When Zacchaeus' life is transformed in Luke 19 by Jesus, he immediately gives away half of his wealth and repays back four times what he stole. Luke 11 is the only place in the Bible where Jesus Christ affirms the tithe as a standard for giving, a 10% 10 per, 10 of your wealth. Luke is continually talking about it, and of course, 11 out of Jesus' 39 parables are directly on money and what we're supposed to do with it. That means 28% of the time Jesus opens his mouth, and maybe more, he's talking about money. That's the reason this man asks the question. He comes to him and is like, Jesus, you love talking about money. Awesome. You're a teacher. Even better. And I'm here listening to the sermon, but you know who needs to listen to the sermon? My brother. Can you come tell my brother everything you're preaching on? We're the same way, aren't we? Oh, this is a great sermon. You know who needs to hear this, though? My brother, my friend, my family member. I'm going to send him the link. Maybe Jesus was trying to teach him something, and he, he was so focused on money he couldn't understand. This man is so used to hearing Jesus say, be generous. He's so used to hearing Jesus relentlessly continue talking about money and wealth and how we should use it. He says, fine, 
Would you talk to my brother about this? It's interesting. But as we point this out, as we've seen again, the Bible says giving and trying to come to grips with why Jesus would talk so much about it and why we talk so little about it. If we look at the whole scope of everything in the Bible, it says about everything a Christian is and does is at the heart of every part of it is money. Let me show you what I mean. When we look at everything a Christian is, the whole range of a Christian character, faith, hope, and love, these three virtues, faith, hope, and love, why don't we give more? Talking personally for a minute, why don't I give more? It's a lack of faith. I'm scared. I wonder whether God will take care of me. Sometimes you're looking at your, your bills, and I look at my bills, and I'm like, wow, there's a tithe. But I look at how, I'm like, man, how could people afford an electric car? Oh, payments. There's a, there's a chunk of money monthly we're given. If I just spent that, that makes sense now. But if I have a lack of faith, and I'm not trusting God to provide, and I'm trusting in the, the bank account, that's why I'm not as generous as I ought to be. Or hope. Why don't we give? Hope means, what do you really get your value from? What do you really get your sense of worth from? Is it in Christ, or is it in how you live? Is your hope really in Christ, or is it in the restaurants and the vacations? And if so, your hope is in the next experience or the next meal, that's one reason why you might not be as generous as you ought. In love. Faith, hope, and love. One of the reasons we don't give is because we lack sympathy. We lack sensitivity to the unbelievable needs that are out there. And we're so insulated or isolated from the needs that we're like, ah, I don't, I'm good. What else can I spend money on me for? Rather than, hey, who has a need and how can I help provide and meet that need? We get scared. We, we don't feel the need. And when we do, we don't know what to do. We, we cut ourselves off so that no one can ask us for things. It's always a quick reality check when you look at your bank account and see how many expenses are on yourself instead of either God's kingdom or people's needs. You can say, I have faith, but here's how you know you have faith. Are you giving generously? And is your hope in Christ and does it reflect it by your bank account? And are you loving people with your time, your talents, and treasures. Do you want to build your hope? Do you want to have a hope that's real, not just sentiment? Or is this something you're talking about? How do you do it? You give. Do you want to have love that's not just a sentiment or an idea? You give. And as we see, you can't say to other people, other Christian brothers and sisters, I love you, but I'm not going to share my wealth with you. We see in Acts chapters 4 and 5 and 6, Christians gave their money away in astonishing portions that showed the world something real and something transformative just took place in their lives. They're no longer selfish, they're selfless. They're no longer looking for people to serve them, they're looking to serve the world around them. The reality of God's generosity, when they looked at Christ emptying himself on the cross, transformed how they viewed the material in light of the eternal. And they are generous with everyone. Here's the point. The reality is giving is not just something over here. It's not just a topic we get to or a subject that 
gets discussed whenever the pastor feels like it or I look at the budget. That's not it. It's God wants your heart and he wants a relationship with you. And out of the overflow of his love in you and his generosity towards you, it's a heart of generosity to give towards others. And when we're not generous, it's a lack of faith, a lack of hope, and a lack of love. In Exodus 33 and 34, God comes to Israel and says, I'll help you, but I'm not going to be real to you. He says, I'll be a concept, I'll do things, but you're never going to have my glory. You're not going to have my reality, my presence. And Moses said, we don't just want the idea of God, we want the reality. We don't just want the sentiment of God or the insignia of God or the symbol of God. We want the reality. We want your presence. And God says, strip off your ornaments, your wealth. Put your wealth at my disposal. You see what he's saying? He says, if you want me to give you my reality, I want to give you my reality, then you can say, you give me your heart. You can say you give your brother or sister your heart, but you have to put your wealth on the line. It, it comes down to, are you really giving your time, talents, and treasure? And so this request is met. And as Jesus hears it, he responds with the second point, the refusal. Why a refusal? He says in verse 14, he said to the man, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he tells a story. So he rebukes him. And he's saying, why do you think I'm the judge over you? The reason, again, is because all throughout the Gospels, Jesus says, I'm the judge. I'm going to come back in judgment. I'm going to divide. But a little confusing, in verse 49 through 51, in the chapter, Jesus seems to completely contradict himself, or Luke does in his arrangement, because he's putting this all together. You see in verse 49, Jesus says one of the most dramatic things. He says, I came to set the world on fire. He says, think not that I came to bring peace on earth, he says, I came to put fire on earth, and I came to divide people. Later, he says, I will divide mother and daughter. I'll divide father and son. Jesus Christ says, I'm a divider. So the guy comes to him because he loves talking about money, and he says he's a judge. And then Jesus is like, I'm not a I can't do that for you. Because the reason was that Jesus came from the eternal, from the, the spiritual into the material, into the physical, broke through as the Son of God, as the Creator. And so Jesus is saying, if that's true, then your relationship to me is more important than anything else. If you have an eye offending you, cut it off. If your hand causes you to sin, remove it from your body. It's better for you to, to be handless or eyeless than to sin and be in hell separated from me forever. They're nothing compared to me. If you have me, you'll conquer the universe. And so Jesus was making these kinds of claims. Choose me or reject me. But there's nobody who makes these kind of claims who you can just casually ignore. A person like this who always is talking about themselves, you have to either submit and, and follow or reject. And so what he's saying here is you need to understand why I've come and what my mission is. 
So what he's appointed to do, he says right here, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The Greek here is actually, you do not exist in your possessions, which is the hardest thing to hear as Americans because all we have are possessions and our paychecks and what's the next vacation, what's the next experience, what's the next restaurant. And so it's so easy to get swept up in this and all of a sudden realize, wow, day after day, week after week, all I've really been doing and been concerned about is my possessions and what they're providing for me. And Jesus is saying, you don't exist in those things. My job is to tell you what life is. I've come, my mission is to show you what life really consists of. It's not about existing, which means to be born, survive for a while, and then die. That's not all that this life is, contrary to what the world is telling you. To live means something beyond that, to have a purpose. And that's why Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full, to have this purpose. So everybody has something they're existing in. So he says, you think your life exists in this inheritance. You think your life exists in this possession or this experience. You haven't understood what I'm here for. I'm not here to get you things. I'm not here to be the divider and the judge over your inheritance. I'm here to give you life. I'm not here to get you the things that will help your existence be a little more fun or more full. I'm here to be your life. I'm here that you would have my life and have my life to the full. And some people would say, you know, I, I want to follow you, but I'm, I'm thinking about becoming a Christian. I have a lot of investments, and Lord, tell the stock market to stop freaking out and be a little more stable. I'm thinking about becoming a Christian, and and tell me who to marry. Or I'm thinking about becoming a Christian and give me the career I want. And it's always going to Jesus to get things from Jesus rather than going to Jesus to get Jesus. It's the same thing. You come in at that level and you say, Lord, I'm thinking about kind of getting to know you and I see you're a great person, a good teacher, and I can't live without you. But Lord, get me this thing that really my life needs for me to exist. Rather than I'm surrendering my life to you and all of my talents, all of my time, and all of my wealth is at your disposal. And Jesus says, I've come to revolutionize, to transform your life, not help you get your agenda accomplished. He says, I'm not appointed to do this. I'm not this kind of divider. If you come to me and ask me to divide this and give you these things before you've given me your very self, before you've seen that what you're living for is all wrong, that what you're living for is this, this bubble of these experiences, of this existence, but really is just going to be blown away like <clears throat> the wind carries the chaff away. And it's there for a moment and then it's gone like a mist. That's the reason you're coming with, with this request. And now before we move on to the last part, which is important, we see if, if you're not sure what you believe, you never make this mistake. Jesus Christ never says to a person when they show up, give me your money. If you give him your money before you give him your life, it has no purpose and no meaning. And yet people do it all the time. They give money to build orphanages or build churches even. Or, or And it's like, oh, now God will listen to me. No. 
Jesus is saying, no, your life is not in this life. Your life is in me. Come to me and believe in me. Come to me and say I'm empty and I'll fill you up. Jesus is saying, I didn't come for you to have your agenda. I didn't come for you to give me, you know, it's, it's interesting. And when you think about it, it's like going to the beach with your kids and they come and give you a handful of sand and like, oh, I got this for you. You have all the sand access on the beach. You don't need your kids' sand to build a sandcastle with them. And yet, somehow we think Jesus wants our money. He could care less about your money. He has the whole universe. He created you and wants a relationship with you. And he came to make that possible. And he's saying there's more to this life than, than what your eyes are seeing. So this rebuke, <clears throat> he's saying you can, <clears throat> you can build your life on anything. You can have possessions but this rebuke starts in verse 20. How often does God come and say, you fool, in Scripture? And the word fool in, in the Bible is a significant word. This word isn't just out of touch with reality, but it's this view that you're rejecting God's definition of reality. So you're saying, no, God, that's not what real, reality is. I can have purpose in, in my existence, in my stuff. That's what Jesus is saying you're, you're a fool for. Thinking, verse 17, he thought to himself, <clears throat> what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? Telling the story of a man who has all this crops. And so verse 18, he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. In verse 19, I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. First off, money blinded this man to the existence of spiritual reality. Second, money blinded this man to the very principle of spiritual reality. Here's what I mean by the existence. It's, it's important. Notice the man, this man saved as if life was all there is. He's like, finally, I have so much. This is awesome. I have to actually tear down my barns to build bigger ones. That, that'll last me my whole, perfect. I can retire at 20 Wow, Fortune 500 retires at 20, tears barns down, builds bigger ones. How did he do it? Early Bitcoin investor. Like, what? How does this guy do it? He's jet setting across the world. Jesus is like, you idiot, you're a fool. You're dead. Now what? Where's all that money going to go? There's more than just this material world. I don't, you know, when you talk about savings, the crazy thing is in verse 18, he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and I will store all my grain and my goods. Everything. He saved everything. He's a saver. Some of you are savers. You're like, yeah, that's my guy. Save everything. Never spend a dime. He saved it all. And if this material world is all there is, then that makes sense. You better save it all because this is all that you're going to have opportunity to enjoy, except it's not all there is. So God says you're a fool, and here's why. Because you stored up as if this world was all there is, as if there wasn't a spiritual reality, as if the material world was all there is, when actually there's an immaterial, there's a spiritual one as well. Another way to put it is this. If there's this physical world, and there is, then to save nothing is stupid, right? We have to be wise and save some. 
It's foolish. But if there's something besides the physical world, then to save everything is foolish. Because God says, you fool, you're dying tonight. Look at this great question. Who will get? Who will receive? Where's your will? Is the state going to get everything? Are your kids going to get anything? Do you think about the future generations? Or are you just spending everything on yourself? Are you so self-centered, self-focused, that it's all about you? What God's actually saying here is that money that you spend on yourself can't go with you. If you spend money on clothes, they burn up. If you spend money on the next house, it's going to fall apart, corrode, and eventually burn. But Scripture says that the kingdom of God will last forever. And Isaiah, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abides forever. The word of God doesn't stop, and people don't stop. They're eternal. In Luke 16, we're told about the unjust steward who comes to his senses and makes friends for himself with his generosity. And then Jesus has the audacity to say, therefore make friends for yourself in heaven with your money, so you'll be welcomed into heavenly mansions. He's talking about here is that people last forever. If you put your money into people, you're putting your money into something that not only has a great return on its investment, but will last eternally. The man said, I'm smart. I have all this money. I'm going to build a bigger barn for myself. Here, Jesus is coming along saying, if you take your money and put it into barns, put it all into savings, it doesn't last. Banks fall apart. Everything falls apart. Put your money into God. Put it into God's kingdom. That's the first point. Money has a tendency to blind us to the spiritual reality. It's interesting, as I was reading a very interesting old document called The Letter to Diognetus. The letter was written after biblical times in the earliest part of the church, kind of Acts 4, 5, and 6, where the church was so generous. It said this, one of the things that makes us so different is that Christians share their table with all, but they don't share their bed with all. And though poor, they make many rich. What was the letter to Diognesis saying? That culture in that day was losing its sense of, of, of God and the eternal. And here's what was happening. When you concentrate completely on this world, on the physical and the material, what happened to that pagan society is what's happened today. He said Christians share their table with all, but not their bed with all. If this world is all there is, then sex is no big deal. And our physical, material is, is just whatever. And you can think what you want, feel what you want, and it's crazy because literally in our state, prostitution is now legal, and we have a three billion surplus. It's exactly, I mean, this scripture, Jesus is like, look, this is the culture, this is your environment, this is what the world's telling you to live. And it's okay. Physically, do whatever you want. It's all about money, but money, we're not going to touch. We're going to keep taxing, we're going to keep spending we're gonna keep printing it's 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 what there is this life's all there is and in the early church they had the same cultural backdrop but they gave so abundantly out of their poverty they didn't have money they didn't they couldn't work anymore because they were christians they were poor but they gave so generously and the culture is like wait a minute you're adopting kids and you're giving so much of your money away that you have, how do you have, I don't understand. And they're like, I don't know either. But I'm seeking God's kingdom. And I'm adopting the orphans and I'm caring for the widows. This is what I'm called to do. And the world's like, you're, you should be selfish. You should be storing up for yourself treasures on earth. 
You, what, what are you doing? Why aren't you doing what the world's telling you to do so you can get a job, so you keep working? If someone asks you for money, you give it to them, but money becomes holy when it's all about material. Money becomes sacred because the money is power, and it's the only way to have power, just like this guy. You can know, he's like, oh, I have all this money, but then I have more money that should be mine. Tell my brother to give it to me. This inheritance issue is driving me nuts. The sermon's great, but my brother needs to hear it. Jesus, go preach it to him. Instead of his generosity, instead of realizing, man, this material world is not all there is. What about my relationship to Jesus? What about my relationship to him? What about the eternal? Christians, because they believe both in the material world and the immaterial world, totally reversed the paradigm. They gave their money to almost anybody who asked. And they only had sex with one or none. They completely flipped up the cultural norm. It's totally different. It's a total change. And what about the culture? It's the same backdrop we see today. You can talk about sex and all the illicit stuff for years. It's been common. But talk about money, oh, we don't talk about money. Especially in the church. It's like, whoa, we don't talk about that. I'm not going to talk to my <clears throat> uncle. And he's like, man, you look at any other religion, and they're especially Islam. They're like, you want a mosque? Perfect. We'll go out and you the biggest, fattest mosque because everyone's going to give money towards what they believe. But in the church, he's like, you want to start a church? You want to grow a church? You want to fund youth ministry? You want to help expand the gospel? I don't, uh, I, I did a lot. I did a big vacation. I'm saving for the next vacation. It's so convicting because of faith. Do we lack faith? Do we lack hope? And most importantly, love. Are we known by our love? Are we... Do we know the needs around us? It was amazing when, when everything hit a couple years ago. I was like, oh, there's all these needs. And looking around at how much wealth we have, so few needs came forth. So many people were like, we're going to lose with this. And then everyone's like, I, I'm making more money now than I've ever made. It's like, well, wait a minute. Are we that insulated and isolated from, from needs and poverty? We need to do better at knowing the needs and as a church, asking when we need. Because I think that's another part where people are too proud to say, hey, I need things. Instead, you take a second job or a second mortgage or you can find ways to finance things instead of saying, hey, I, I have a need. Because money's sacred. We don't talk about it. But if we see that there's an immaterial and a spiritual reality, the result is we start to treat our money as a tool. We start talking about it. Some of you may be offended saying, oh man, I don't mind if he's talking about loving more or being more humble or I need to serve, but money, this is challenging. Well, the second way we see that money blinds us is not just the existence of spiritual reality, but also the very principle of it. The Bible over and over says that there's a spiritual realm there's one principle for progress, and do you know what it is? It's the opposite of what the world says the principle of progress is. The world says to store up, and the Bible says empty your barns. It says it in many ways. Jesus says the one who wants to find himself must lose himself. At the end, he says in verse 21, <clears throat> so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. They're going to lose himself. And then he goes on 
And he's talking to the disciples again in verse 22, and he's saying, I don't want you to be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat or what you're going to clothe your body with, what you'll put on. Isn't life more than food and body more than clothes? And he's like, hey, look at the birds. God takes care of them. Look at the grass. It's green for a season, then it goes away, and God takes care of it all. Aren't you more important than that? Don't you know that God's worth and value of you is way more than that, and he cares for all of them and provides for them? Is he not going to provide for you? And then verse 25, he calls out our anxiety, which, if I'm honest, and, and from experience, the most prominent thing we're anxious about is our finances, Verse 25, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Pushing again, that's not all about the material. Don't be anxious about the material. If our peace, if our life is in Jesus, then we'll be generous and we'll be able to have the faith that we're called to have, the hope in Jesus and love so extravagantly the world will have no argument and will be silenced in amazement of how God's changed you and used you to change the world around you. It's amazing. As he goes on and says, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And then he ends it. You're like, where did you get faith, hope, and love? In verse 28 at the end, he says, Oh, you of little faith. We lack faith that God will provide, that God will take care of us. When, when Scripture says the real way to joy is to repent, the real way to riches is to empty your barns, can we have faith that when we, when we give generously that God will provide? That's what the church did, and that's what the church was seen and known for. And the world says it's ridiculous. But Jesus puts it right out there, and he says, look, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for themselves. That's what the world's way to strength. But it's not rich towards God. Rich towards God means emptying your barns, giving it away. And we see that the world is saying, you fool, but really Jesus is saying, no, you're a fool for storing up the material, thinking that's going to last. Give away your honor. Admit when you're wrong. Serve other people. Sacrifice. Surrender. The world says you're a fool, but this is what Jesus is saying, no, this is the right way to live. In 1 Corinthians, we see the message of cross, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. The weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Jesus is proving what is true. He was filled through emptying. When he was on the cross, he gave up his glory, emptying himself of his glory. He's proof. He's a man who had sandals on. He didn't have boots. He didn't have a home. He's a man who had no money. He's a man who had no organization, no publicity, and is yet the most influential man who's ever lived. And his followers still are the most powerful force in the history of the world, without a doubt. And he won by losing. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Jesus Christ, though he was rich, became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Every other religion says, store up, do your good deeds. And at the end, say to God, look at my barn full of good works. 
and God will let you in. But Christianity says no. If you want to be united with Christ and you want to follow Christ, then you can't come and say, I'm full, because he'll say, no, you're empty. You have to come to him and say, I'm empty. All I am is evil, and all I do is wrong. And he said, I'll fill you with my spirit. I'll cleanse you from all your wrongdoing. We have to come and say, I'm nothing. I have nothing. I cannot earn salvation. I'm weak. I don't deserve it. And he says, good, come. And I'll fill you and I'll save you. So how do I become rich towards God? 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 says, Though he was rich, he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich, right? How does that happen? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin. God somehow made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We would be full of his spirit, full of his love, full of that faith, full of that hope, full of that love to pour out into others. Because of what Jesus has done, you're clothed in righteousness. You're holy, blameless before God, and you're rich. And here's how we know. When your money isn't precious to you anymore, when your possessions aren't precious to you anymore, they have no hold on you anymore, and it's only Jesus that satisfies. That's when you know you're saved. That's when you know that the world owes you nothing and can't frighten you any longer, and you can serve freely your Lord and Savior, and you can give freely. And as we see in verse 30, all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. We're in a material world. We need food. We need clothes, and the whole world is trying to sell and buy and store up enough to retire And God's like, I know you need it. I got you. Just trust in me and receive life. Stop trying to exist and toil and strive for more. Be content with how I provide for you and give generously to those who ask. And it's it's that simple. Right there, Jesus is like, dude, the whole world, the nations, even today we see it. All the woes and the truckies getting shut down and the shipping and everyone's like, how are we going to do it? Ah, everything's falling apart and we're going to eat. I don't know about the diesel or the food. God's like, I know. Just read right here. Just calm down. Just read it. I got you. I'll feed you. I'll put clothes on you. It's fine. It's fine. What do you, what do you think? I forgot you? No, I came and died for you. Now, surrender to me your whole life. And the 10%, really, you're going to get... You're going to get choked up over 10%? I've given everything to you. I don't even worry about that. Let's, we'll talk about that later. I want all of you. I want your heart. I want your soul. I want your strength. I want your mind. And I'm going to fill you with my spirit and bring peace that surpasses understanding. And that is what the Father said in verse 31. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. And then he says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where the thief approach, no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And as we close, our treasures in Christ, as we seek his kingdom, doing his will, it starts with our surrendered life radically 
surrendering to him so that we can be radically generous with all the material wealth, all of the time, all of our treasures and talents he's given us for his glory and our good. So as we close with communion, it's always been about Jesus and his gift and his inheritance he gave to us. We won't radically give to others until we have first radically given our whole life to God. As Jesus came and gave himself to us on the cross. So as we have communion elements to pastor on for those who believe already, some might be here going, man, I don't know if I believe, but I know I've been existing. I've been breathing. I've been striving. I've been trying to make sense of what's come the past couple years or my whole life. I want to start living. I want to live a purpose-filled life. I want to have something that lasts. That's what Jesus came to give. As he gave his life away, he gave that peace. He gave that presence that no matter what happens in this world, we have peace, we have hope, we have faith, and ultimately we have love that the world knows nothing of. And so if you are now acknowledging that you're a sinner in need of a savior, you simply believe and are saved. That's the beauty of the gospel. You say, I have nothing, and he comes and says, good, because I have everything, and he fills you, and you're saved. And then the beautiful part is that God's wrath is now poured out on Jesus for you. You're no longer guilty. You're innocent. For those who believe already, you're like, yes, thank you for reminding me, because last week was rough, or this week is challenging, and we have that hope. And so as we go into the presence of the Lord in prayer, I'll come back up and close this. And, and if you're believing now for the first time, let us know. We love to walk with you through that a journey and, and help you take the next step and getting baptized and get you a Bible and get you those resources. But it's, it's nothing special other than what God's done in your heart already and you just were awakened to it and you see it and acknowledge it and believe and are saved. For those of you that believe, enjoy the next minute in prayer and I'll come up and close this.